Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 417th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the uber-popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, as you know from listening to Wally's broadcast. And good morning, Erica. Thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everybody. We have a special treat for our listeners this morning. We have a double dose of Dr. Reamer. You're going to be reporting our lead story. Plus, you have a talkback segment this morning. Is that right? It is. A double dose of me. Whoa. So what's your lead story this morning? Well, I'm going to talk about my suggestions for guidelines on how to handle the results of pending COVID-19 tests and whether you really should query them all. Mm. And what about uh, your talkback? What are you going to be talking about then? I'm going to talk about think I had itis. I think you're going to like this. And also on the broadcast this morning will be Lori Johnson, who has the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report. And later, our good friend Holly Louie returns to the broadcast report on the consequences of diagnosis when the incorrect information makes its way all the way through the system. That's not good. No, it is not. And in speaking of friends, however, of the broadcast, Stanley Nockhamson returns with his reg watch. <laughs> I'm always looking forward to hearing the very latest regulatory news coming out of Washington. Looking forward to that. We have much news to report this morning. We'll begin with Tim Powell, who is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University Bookstore. Reminding you that Dr. Eric Reamer's ICD-10 flowcharts provide quick guidance to the correct diagnosis codes for potential COVID-19 cases. Use the ICD-10 Monitor Resources tab at the top of the web room for more information. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And if you listen to me here, you may have heard my comments about statistical probabilities. My favorite analogy goes like this. A person flips a coin. Let's see if I keep flipping the coin, the chance of the result will eventually be tails. On the first flip, there's a 50-50 chance the coin will land as tails. If I flip the coin again, there's a 75% chance that either on the first flip or the second flip, the coin will land as tails. If I flip the coin three times, there's an 87.5% chance that one flip will come up tails out of three. If I flip the coin just 10 times, there's a 99.9% chance that one of the 10 flips will come up as tails. We can equate this to the chance that on multiple exposures, a person will contract COVID-19. If there's a 50% chance you can become infected on one initial exposure, there's a 99.9% chance that a person exposed 10 times will become infected. It turns out that the National Institute for Health, NIH, has asked the question, what is the chance that if a person, a person will become infected on multiple exposures to a contagious disease? They wrote an article, and they created software called the Statistical Software for Analyzing the Health Effects of Multiple Concurrent Exposures via Bayesian Kernel Machine uh, Regression. I don't have time here to provide a full discussion of the subject if you look my article that gets posted later on the week, you're going to see a curve that's going to look like what will come out of the model. I also want our readers to understand that additional study is needed to build models with variables like location, length of exposure, and a variety of patient-specific issues that need to be addressed. Am I more likely to become infected at the beach, at the bar, uh, at a club, or uh, even worse, in a nursing home? And with that, I'm hoping for more research. Back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's June 2nd, and you're listening to the 470th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Over the past few months, the COVID-19 pandemic has taken the world by storm, leaving coders in its wake. As a result, there's confusion about coding and documenting the deadly coronavirus. But here's good news. ICD-10 Monitor now offers a set of electronic coding flowcharts to provide coders with quick guidance to accurate and compliant code assignments. Plus, now available on demand are two COVID-19 webcasts. Register to learn how to build telehealth services under the 1135 waiver. And also available on demand, how to capture and code COVID-19 correctly. These new resources are part of the COVID-19 coding portfolio produced by ICD-10 Monitor to help you code accurately and compliantly during the pandemic. Visit the ICD-10 Monitor web store to learn more. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is the aforementioned Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. Recently, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has updated information regarding the risk factors for COVID-19, and those included asthma, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, hemoglobin disorders, chronic lung conditions, immunocompromised status, liver disease, 65 years of age or greater, residents of a nursing home or a long-term care facility, serious heart conditions, and severe obesity. There has been a lot of discussion about the other risk factors, but I found the obesity uh, topic to be interesting. Obesity is defined as excessive amount of body fat. It increases risk factors or, or a patient's risk for heart disease, hypertension, and some other and some specific cancers. Obesity is measured by body mass index or BMI. The body mass index is the weight in kilograms divided by the square of the height in meters for adults. And adults is defined as age 20 and older. The BMI is an indicator of um, Body fat does not necessarily mean the health of the patient. The categories of obesity, you have underweight, and the BMI is less than 18.5. Normal, where the BMI is greater than 18.5 and less than 25. Overweight, BMI is greater than 25 and less than 30. Obesity, class 1, BMI is greater than 30 and less than 35. Obesity class 2, where the BMI is greater than 35 and less than 40, and obesity class 3, which is considered morbid or extreme obesity, and the BMI is equal to or greater than 40. It should be noted that the BMI is measured differently for children. For pediatric patients, its measurement is based on age, gender, and percentiles. There's wonderful guidance with regards to BMI in Coding Clinic, fourth quarter, 2018. Coding a weight diagnosis um, is found, or the codes for weight diagnosis are found in various chapters of ICD-10-CM. Underweight is coded as a sign and symptom code, which is R63.6. 
the code for obesity is found in Chapter 4, which is Endocrine, Metabolic, and Nutritional Diseases. The code for morbid obesity is E6601, and that's also found in Chapter 4. The um, BMI can also indicate the extent of the obesity. And so adult BMI is reported with code Z68.0 to Z68.45, and pediatric BMI is reported with Z68.51 to Z68.54. And there are instructional notes in category Z68 that the adult BMI applies to patients age 20 and older, and pediatric BMI is applicable to age 2 to 19. So it's important to look at the coding guidance related to these weight diagnoses and also look at your facility-specific guidelines. Do, do your coders know which BMI documentation they should be using? Is it the BMI at admission? Is it the BMI at discharge? What is the most accurate? So you should de define your source of truth so that your data is consistent. The diagnosis of obesity is a risk factor for coronavirus, but it is also a focus for payer review of claims. So ensure that you have the correct weight and BMI um, diagnosis codes, and they're reported accurately and supported by the documentation. With that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Now is the time for RegWatch featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Nachmanson. And Stanley, good morning. A lot of news coming out of Washington these days. What do we really need to know? Good morning, Chuck. Good morning to everyone. I've got a mix of both COVID-19 and other types of changes that are coming from CMS. Uh, on May 8th, CMS published an interim final rule uh, with a comment period regarding policy changes to provide some financial protections to accountable care organizations while limiting the potential for windfall gains under COVID-19. This rule removed COVID-related costs uh, from the performance year expenditures, a beneficiaries Part A and B expenditures for the affected months triggered by an inpatient episode of care for COVID-19, and also removed the COVID-related costs from fee-for-service fee for spending used to calculate regional and national trend factors. This will reduce the variation between national and regional spending trends stemming from COVID, and that will help large ACOs that are operating in COVID hotspots. Now, in March, CMS announced a voluntary Medicare savings model to reduce the cost of insulin for seniors. More than 1,750 Medicare Part D and Medicare Advantage plans have applied for this model, under which seniors won't have to pay more than $35 a month for insulin. Seniors in these plans will get access to a broad set of insulin from the beginning of the 2021 plan year through the Part D coverage gap, including both pen and vial dosage delivery methods for rapid-acting, short-acting, intermediate-acting, and long-acting insulin. And there are some big changes coming to Medicare Advantage for 2021. For the plan year, CMS has finalized a number of changes to the MA plan requirements. CMS is encouraging 
Medicare Advantage plans to increase their telehealth benefits and increase plan options for beneficiaries living in rural areas. It's giving Medicare Advantage plans more flexibility to count telehealth providers in certain specialty areas, such as dermatology or psychiatry or cardiology, towards meeting CMS network adequacy standards. And beneficiaries with end-stage renal disease will, will now have more coverage choices in the Medicare program. Previously, beneficiaries with ESRD were only allowed to enroll in MA plans in limited circumstances. However, this new rule implements changes made by the 21st Century Cures Act to give all beneficiaries with ESRD the option to enroll in an MA plan starting in 2021. CMS also made changes to enhance the star ratings for Medicare Advantage and Part D plans, which further increases the impact that patient experiences and access measures have on a plan's overall star rating. And in re regards to COVID-19 upcoding, the Principal Deputy Inspector General for HHS told members of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform that, quote, we are monitoring through our data accompanying bills and claims with a COVID-19 diagnosis as a way to potentially upcode. Now, this is part of the IG's regular monitoring of Medicare claims. So thanks very much. And uh, Erica, back to you. Thank you, Stanley. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Our Tuesday focus is from Holly Louie, who explains how coders are encountering inadequate physician documentation that's creating barriers for accurate diagnosis reporting. So good morning, Holly. What is going on here? Good morning, Chuck and Erica. What is going on is, I think, in some cases, confusion about correct coding for the various COVID categories of confirmed, presumptive, suspected, or possible. And I think in some cases, the documentation is just woefully inadequate. I remember a show we did not too long ago where we discussed a coding contest and the findings of very poor accuracy in outpatient coding. Well, I'm telling you, I'm living it. Um, some of the things that we're seeing, especially for the diagnostic specialties downstream, such as radiology, that many times the coders or billing company or the radiologist don't have access to the complete medical record. They have a report and an order. And what we're seeing in many cases is the order is a nebulous symptom, cough, chest pain, wheezing, that could be any number of things and the chest x-ray is equivocal or negative or has no relevant findings other than a chronic condition. So that's how it's coded. But then it turns out after the fact on audit or patient complaint or other reason that really the patient was a confirmed COVID patient. They knew it was at least presumptive at the time the test was ordered, but none of that information made it downstream to the providers after the fact, such as radiology. The other thing we're hearing anecdotally, quite broadly, is that some EDs are giving a COVID-confirmed diagnosis or presumptive diagnosis on 100% of the patients that come in, with the uh, philosophy being, every, since every patient is a possible COVID patient, every patient should have a COVID diagnosis. I think something got lost in the translation there. The other thing that we're seeing quite commonly, which makes perfect sense in many ways, and I'll be interested in, in Dr. Reamer's comments, are screenings for patients that are potentially are at risk. But in some cases, it's just routine screening before an admission or a procedure. 
similar to MRSA to make sure the patient is not bringing an infection into the hospital that could negatively affect other patients and or healthcare workers. So my takeaway, I think, is I'm concerned about the demographics, the pandemic data and statistics, and any um, decisions made based on the reporting of diagnosis codes related to COVID. I think there's a lot of false positives and a lot of false negatives if that is the criteria that are used. And the more we look, the more the auditing is not giving us a warm and fuzzy that coding is indeed accurate for these cases. That's what I have today. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Holly. Um, I actually do have a couple of uh, quick uh, comments. Number one, uh, presumptive uh, diagnosis um, used to be what it was presumptive positive test, which was a, a state or local level test was positive, and they were waiting for a CDC confirmed, um, and they've eliminated that category. So if a patient has a positive test, they are considered to be positive. There aren't a lot of false positives. It's the false negatives that are the issue. Um, presumed COVID-19 is actually still an uncertain diagnosis, like probable, suspected, likely, uh, and that is coded the same way that uncertain diagnoses of COVID is um, is coded, and that would be signs and symptoms and an exposure code. And in terms of screening during the pandemic, we're not seeing a lot of screening. Most of it is being done in response to exposure. And I would suggest you guys go back and look at my ICD-10 monitor. Um, I've written a couple of articles about this that uh, talk about it um, in, ex- uh, in depth. So that was Holly Louie. Thank you, Holly. Um, she is the past president of the Healthcare Business and Management Association and the compliance officer for PMI. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you, Holly, very much, and you can read Holly's excellent report on this very important subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Up next, our lead story from Dr. Erica Reamer. You are listening to the 417th Live Edition of Tucked In Tuesday. Stand by. The inpatient prospective payment system proposed rule contains impactful changes, including those to the ICD-10-CMPCS classification systems, MSDRGs, and new technology add-on payments. During an ICD-10 Monitor webcast, Coding Authority Lori Johnson will provide essential education on the changes contained in the fiscal year 2021 IPPS proposed rule. This important webcast is today, Tuesday, June 2nd at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now and save $30 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY at checkout. This webcast is part of the portfolio of educational webcasts produced by ICD-10 Monitor. And during this national public health emergency, accessible online education is more important than ever. Visit the ICD-10 Monitor web store to learn how you can subscribe to the ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast series. Our lead story this morning is being reported by our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. There are many different ways we investigate infectious diseases with current technology. In the case of COVID-19, the widely used reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction, RT-PCR or PCR test, qualitatively detects nucleic acid from the viral ribonucleic acid RNA requiring viral genetic material. There are now rapid antigen tests, which can detect fragments of proteins found on or within the virus. 
And then finally, there are antibody or serological tests, which can assess whether or not antibodies have been made in an immune response to a viral infection. Each of these tests has its own accuracy, sensitivity, specificity, and challenges. Not all test results return in a practical, timely fashion. Nationwide, we are having issues of availability of COVID testing. There are still many tests which are not FDA-approved. The tests to diagnose COVID-19 infection have significant false negative rates. The PCR testing has up to 30%, and the rapid antigen testing is noted to have 15 to 20% false negative rate. Some of these tests take hours, and some take days to yield results. This means that patients will sometimes be discharged or die prior to the results of their COVID-19 tests being known. AHA and AHIMA guidance advises developing facility-specific coding guidelines to hold back coding of inpatient admissions and outpatient encounters until the results are available. They recommend querying the provider if the test results come back negative, even if the provider documented a diagnosis of COVID-19 on a clinical basis, to give them, quote, the opportunity to reconsider the diagnosis based on new information, close quote. In my opinion as a doctor and an ex-physician advisor, I can tell you that it would irritate a provider to get queried to confirm a diagnosis they had already made clinically and documented in a codable format. I agree with developing facility-specific coding guidelines, but they should be sensible and reasonable. Here are my suggestions. In the case of concordant documentation and testing, COVID-19 by clinical judgment and the test returns positive. Code without query. Send feedback notification informing the provider. They may addend the record with the confirmatory result if they so choose. Example two would be acute gastroenteritis, doubt COVID-19, and the test returns negative. Do not code. Do not query. And notification is not necessary but could be done on an informational basis. Here's another example, fever and cough, probable COVID-19, and the test result returns positive. You code it without query because the test is positive, but you should send confirmatory notification and the provider may addend the record with a confirmatory result if they so choose. But then comes the discordant documentation and testing. So they say COVID-19 by clinical judgment and the test returns negative. If the clinical indicators are supportive, you should code it without query because that verbiage is sufficient. Send feedback notification, and best practice would be for them to document the negative result and explain that they think it is a false negative. If clinical indicators do not support a diagnosis, you should generate a clinical validation query. The other example, acute gastroenteritis, doubt COVID-19, and the test returns positive code COVID-19, and send notification informing provider of the positive result and request an addendum for the record. And then fever and cough, probable COVID-19, and the test returns negative. Query for clarification. Does the provider believe this is a false negative? Do they want to revise their diagnosis? What if there is no mention of COVID-19 or testing in the documentation, but testing was done? This may ultimately result in denial of payment for the testing if there is no clear justification for why the test was performed. If it's positive, 
code COVID-19. Send notification of the positive result and request an addendum for the record. This notification should educate that best practices to document a reason as to why the COVID-19 testing was done, such as being due to a potential exposure or the patient requested it or whatever. If negative, send notification informing the provider that best practice is to document a reason as to why the COVID-19 testing was done. Providers will change their behavior if they understand why it is being asked of them. They do not appreciate additional documentation burden for no good reason. Give them a good reason. And you can see my article for some sample verbiage if you'd like. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Erica, very much. And as Erica said, you can read her very important article on this subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor. Once again, our very popular segment here at Talk Ten Tuesday is called Talk Back, and it features on Dr. Erica Reamer. So once again, here's a very familiar voice, that of Dr. Reamer. Do you think you have think I had it-itis? There is no ICD-10-CM code for it. It is a condition which afflicts people who have experienced COVID-like illness, and they think they had it already. They fluctuate between exhilaration having beaten the disease and anxiety of possibly having been the vector, giving it to other people unknowingly. Until May 14th, I suffered from this condition. I flew to Maui March 3rd from Cleveland and found myself ill upon arrival. I felt like I had been run over by a truck for five days and had a bronchitis-type picture. I tried to isolate. I didn't shake hands or hug anyone. We really didn't do any activities for the first week because I was not feeling up to it. My infectious disease doctor friend poo-pooed it, saying it was a flu. Well, we flew to Oahu at the end of the week. Have you ever been to Pearl Harbor? You move through the exhibits with huge masses of people, most of whom are Asian and masked because they know better. There are buttons to push and knobs to turn. I used hand sanitizer, the same as I always do, but in retrospect, I worry. Did I do enough? Fortunately, Hawaii seems to have been relatively spared. They've had fewer than 1,000 cases, so I guess I wasn't COVID-19 typhoid Mary, like you suggested, Lon Hirsch. We returned home on March 13th, and the world imploded on March 15th. My older son came home from New York City suffering from think I had itis. In February, he went on a vacation to Spain and had a febrile respiratory illness with loss of, taste of, uh, loss of sense of taste and smell. He knows he has been exposed multiple times since then. My younger son had four weeks of GI symptoms, which the gastroenterologist said was likely COVID-19. May 14th, the results of my antibody test came back positive. It affirmed what I knew. I had it. I am grateful that I did. The stress of life right now, dealing with the pandemic, unprecedented economic turmoil, worrying about all loved ones, I haven't seen my father in his assisted living since mid-March, was more than enough for me without the uncertainty of waiting for the COVID-19 shoe to drop. I sympathize with those of you who haven't recovered from it yet. Unfortunately, the rest of my family's serology results came back negative. There are some major concerns about the accuracy of antibody tests, so I'm not sure what this means. However, I had been doing all of the shopping, cooking, cleaning, interacting with the outside world for my household, and I will continue to do so. I firmly believe that social distancing and hygienic practices flattened the curve. I hope there is some degree of immunity, but the duration is unknown, so I know it is possible I could get it again someday. But even if I had permanent immunity, have you seen the Japanese video simulating a man spreading germs under fluorescent lighting at a buffet? They say the transmission is most likely person-to-person aerosol and not from objects, 
but I think it's going to be somewhat similar to other viruses. If I went to the grocery store and got contaminated with viral particles, I might not contract the disease again, but I could spread the virus to my family if I didn't practice good hand-washing. It is incumbent upon all of us to be responsible and act as though we could be the vector even if we are immune. I am petrified when I watch the news this week. I understand the need to protest, and everyone wants to get back to work. Wearing a mask and adhering to social distancing is not an affront to your freedom. It is caring for others. We are morally responsible for each other. I am paraphrasing Hillel when I say, if I am not for myself, then who will be for me? If I am only for myself, what kind of person am I? Please be safe and take care of each other and yourselves. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. That's going to be a wrap for our 417th live edition of Tucked In Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Laura Johnson, Holly Louie, Tim Powell, Stanley Knoxon, and of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, thanks very much for that talkback segment. And remember, you can listen to all the Tucked In Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device. My goodness, it's absolutely free. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for IC10 Monitor and Tucked In Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.